Hey everybody, this is Keach Rainwater. I'm your designated drummer today, and welcome to the podcast. And I have a very special guest with me today, a good friend of mine. I've known him for a couple of years, and uh, he is the author of the number one bestseller, I Signed What? No, just kidding. <laughs> Which would make a good book, wouldn't it? This is Chris Hugan, and he is an entertainment attorney and, uh, how would you, just general lawyer? How would you... I do just a lot of general business transactions, but a lot of um, intellectual property transactions, and that would be entertainment and trademark. Yeah. I do a lot of trademark work, which is sort of a, a cousin of entertainment law or part of it. Yeah, I like the way you said that. It's like a cousin because there's, there's a whole sort of family of, of law things that are sort of related, you know, like that. Um, sure. It's amazing to me how law can be so confusing to most people, to, to most musicians, too, because... Um, back in the day, I read where some of these great famous people had signed uh, these crazy publishing deals or, or, or management deals or something like that, basically rendering them uh, useless. I mean, uh, where they don't own their own music, like people like Prince and Bruce Springsteen, or not, sorry, not Bruce Springsteen, I meant to say Billy Joel. Billy Joel. Billy Joel mm-hmm. And they had to like basically just stop playing in their name or something like that. How, right. How does Those something like have, that happen? I, the, well, the Prince thing, I think, was a name, image, and likeness thing, which is a separate area of entertainment law. You know, there's copyright, there's trademark, but every artist has rights in their name, image, and likeness. And when Prince signed his recording contract, I think, was that Warner Brothers? I'm not sure. I, can't, I, I just don't heard that was, was. He had to stop using his name. Right. He, he didn't want to complete his contract, and... Under his contract, until his contract with, if it was Warner, if it were Warner, until that terminated, they had the exclusive right to use his name. So he went ahead and released a, a, another record. He couldn't use his name. That's so crazy. Into, until until later. And so. similarly, Billy Joel back in the day. You know, there was this dark period where I read where. He uh, was just had to work at a piano bar, and he was trying to get out of a management contract or something like that, and he Maybe. just waited it out. I remember that. I remember that. That I think the thing, you know, especially with artists, is is you'll sign a multitude of contracts. A typical artist, especially if you're a songwriter and an artist, you'll you'll probably have a contract with a personal manager. Um, you'll have a publishing contract for your songs. Sometimes that's with a publishing company that's affiliated with your record label. Sometimes it's not. Yeah. Um, and then you'll have a recording contract. Um, you may have other contracts there. So any one of those contracts could potentially sink you. Yeah, right. Now, yeah. I, I was listening to the podcast of, uh, I mean, the audio book from Mick Fleetwood. He was talking about Fleetwood Mac back in the day. This was before their big fame. This was just, just about the time they started to kind of come out with Stevie Nicks and, and Lindsey Buckingham and all that. They had signed some management contract that basically a manager said that he owned the name Fleetwood Mac. And he was actually going to, in England, going to start a band called Fleetwood Mac and tour with, and it wasn't those guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, how does something like that happen? Well, let me just say, I mean, it happened to Grand Funk Railroad, too, if anybody wants to look up the history of that. That's, that's really? a sordid, awful thing. And Mark Farner's still out there, who was the guitar player and the main writer. He's oh, still out right? there doing it. But what happens, and this is sort of just getting back to black letter law of contracts, is in the United States, and I, I really can't speak outside of the United States, but it, it, you are, if you sign a contract... There are two things in all 50 states that are presumed is you're presumed to have read it and you're presumed to have understood it. 
Which are two kind of different things because of lawyer speak. You know, there's right. so many things in there. There are. And let me tell you, that extends to non-English speakers. So if, uh, you know, obviously there's a, a larger Latino population in the United States now, and, and I oftentimes get calls from Latinos because I speak a little Spanish, and, uh, and they say, well, I didn't know what it said. And I just signed it. They told me what it said. I thought that's what it said, and I didn't know. And you wish that could be a defense for them, but it's unfortunately not. They're presumed to have read it and presumed to have understood it. It's always seemed kind of crazy to me that a person, a human being, can take a pen and scribble a line, a squiggly line that's basically your squiggly line, and the implications of that action, whether it's buying a house or signing a record contract or whatever, the fact that you squiggled a line on there can yeah. mean so much. It's crazy to me. Yeah, it, it can. You've, you've <laughs> got to make sure you know what you're signing. Yeah, that's right. So I, I think my advice to, and of course yours would, advice to young musicians, uh, is pretty much hopefully who we're talking to right now, people that are thinking about getting into the recording music or playing in a band, is to hire somebody that is illegal, that knows how to read that stuff and all that, and not sign something that you that you uh, are excited about or that you think you understand or whatever, just get legal for sure. Yeah, Pay for the, it. Well, that's the problem is paying for it. Yeah. And you have, you know, a 17-year-old. I think Mark Farner was 17 when he signed his deal. Um, he had no money. He trusted his yeah. manager, um, he, who also was a producer. And that was the sordid part of the Mark Farner thing was the manager was taking a management fee, then he was also taking a producer's fee. Yeah, and I think there's kind of a, 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 there's sort of a hidden mask of a manager. In the beginning, you think that you sort of, they are kind of like a lawyer. You think mm-hmm. that, oh, well, I trust this person. They're going to manage me. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of times they have, there's the devil behind them. I mean, they have intentions of making right. a lot of money from you and not sure. paying you anything. I mean. I think one thing that young people could do right away is start educating themselves now about the business and and the different components, how the money flows, where it comes from, and and what is normal in the business for for somebody, a performer or a songwriter or whatever they're going to get. Uh, The the good book that everybody should read is it's authored by a lawyer in Los Angeles named Donald Passman. And it's called Everything You Want to Know About the Music's Business, something like that. But we're afraid to ask. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's actually required reading in certain music business programs. And it is a nuts and bolts, plain English uh, book written by a lawyer who points out all of these pitfalls that can happen. And you can educate yourself pretty well. In fact, gosh, 20, Donald Passman's a little bit older now. I think I read probably the first or second edition, and that would have been, God, maybe in the 80s when I started reading it. And that's when I started understanding about music publishing, the roles of managers, the roles of attorneys, the roles of business managers, which are a little different than personal managers. And you start understanding, okay, how much do I... How much will I pay this person if I, you know, if I need to hire them or they want to take me on, and and that helps so much. Right. But a young person, you know, they oftentimes don't have the money to pay a lawyer. Yeah. And, and they don't think they need one. They're they're what? so hungry that they want to make some money in the music business. And this is a legitimate contract. Wow, a recording mm-hmm. contract. This is great. This is going to save me. And they don't think about. Uh, well, the problems usually don't arise until the money starts coming in. Of course. Yeah. And, then, and then all of a sudden, somebody looks in accounting and say, well, wait a second, we sold X number of records, but I have a check here for 
not a lot of money. And you start poking around, and that's when a lot of people learn about the music business. But what have you done? You've scribbled on the bottom line, and you may be stuck with what you have. So. Golly. The other thing I can, you know, for young people that I that I think is very important is usually if you're in a band, if you're in a band and your band is out looking for a record deal, it's it's all fun and games at the beginning. You're all in the in it, you're all writing, you know, and you just think we're one cohesive group. No money's coming in. You're out getting gigs. All of a sudden, maybe you get a little interest, some money starts coming in and uh and you don't have any agreement between the four band members right. as to who owns the intellectual property associated with the band. If the band has a band name, who owns the band name? Yeah, not just songs or albums. We're talking about things that you don't think about, like the name of the band. Right, right. And when the money comes in, how are we going to split it up? You know, does the front man, since he's the guy out there, really... You know, driving the band sales and driving, does he get a little more money or do you split it up? So band, you know, if, if you're in a band and, and you start getting some success and you think something's going to happen, I think it's, it, that is when you probably do the, you know, need to, to get a, a, some sort of band partnership agreement. Now, bands ultimately will incorporate or they'll become LLCs and function like real companies. But uh, on the on the front end, a simple two page band partnership agreement, you know, for, for a enough. starting band, I mean, it can be. And and the thing you just you just want to address this, the simple things or the, the basic things. Who owns the band name? You know, how are we going to split up the money? You know, you could even go as far as saying, how are we all going to be authors on the songs? Even if we just contribute a little bit, are we just going yeah. to deem all four of us? I think Van Halen always did I that. I was going to say, I read somewhere that Van Halen, um, back when, now this wasn't the David Lee Roth days. This, from what I understand, this was when Sammy Hagar had joined the band. They decided to make an agreement, a four-part agreement, that didn't matter who wrote the song, there's enough money to go around. We're all good. Whoever wrote the song, whatever, we all played on it, we all contribute, we all own X song because we are X members in this band, no matter right. who wrote and, it. And they're deemed authors under copyright right. law, even though authors is generally associated with literary works. Yeah. And under copyright law, an author is whoever created the work. And if you're an author of a work, that gives you certain rights under copyright law. Right. So uh, just for instance, songwriters, if three songwriters get in a room and they write a song, and they walk out, and maybe the song was 75% written by one of them before he walked in the door. The other two just helped him finish it up. Right. When they walk out of the room, they're presumed under copyright law to be 33% owners each of that copyright, even though somebody else did 75%. Yeah. I've so, heard stories about people saying, I was in the room. <laughs> you know? Right, right. And that's the way the, the law is presumed, is if you create, if you contributed anything to the creation, you're an equal owner of, an equal author, equal owner of the copyright. You can defeat that through a written agreement though. You right. can do that. If you have a written agreement signed by all the parties that says, hey, um, you know, this party is going to be deemed a yeah. 75% offer and I'm going to be 25, you can, that, that works. And what's strange to me about songs when you really think about it, uh, lyrics, you know, the lyrics of the song, the people that, the person that wrote the song, you know, mm-hmm. the lyrics, um, it seems like they are the ones, that's the intellectual property, and they're the ones that sort of wrote the song or whatever. you got your guitar player that played a cool riff or something on there. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
in the studio. Like he didn't write the song, but he he said, "Hey, what if we do this thing?" He's not really an author on it. Let's say generally, but um, the person who wrote the song, wrote the lyrics or whatever, they get they own the publishing on the song. Let's say, and in the seventies, a lot of songs when you listen to them, you couldn't even understand the lyrics. So like the lyrics were the smallest to me anyway. I couldn't even understand half the things Elton John sang on these things. You know, yeah. That, uh, yeah. That, but but you listen to the music and the guitar solo and the whole everything else that goes in that song makes up that song to me. That that's why I like that song, the drum part and all that. But then the person who wrote the lyrics you can't understand um they yeah. own the the rights to the song it's they, strange to me to the composition but you also have to and this is important too is to, to recognize that there's a there are two when you go in and record a song there are two copyrights one is the composition copyright that's the song which you were just talking about but once you record that and have a recording of it there's a second copyright called a sound recording copyright and that's typically what the record label owns so they copyright. exploit the sound recording copyright. Oh, I see. The publisher exploits the composition copyright. So it's broken down that way, huh? That's yes. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. Well, since that. 1972, that's when uh-huh. sound recordings first got their the, uh, recognized as copyright. And a lot of some some listeners, you may have, re, have seen some things about the Turtles having a bunch of litigation about their sound recordings pre 1972 right. sound recordings. Oh, right. And and um, and and so they were they were. There were no protection for pre seventy two sound recordings. And that was the band that did the "So Happy Together." Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. Flo wow. and Eddie. Yeah, and uh, and and people were just using the daylights out of that. And they said, "Hey, there's no protection on that." And I don't know what was going on with the the composition copyright there, but they said, "Wait a second. And they started suing since there was no federal copyright protection for sound recordings. They started suing under common law, state common law. There was some protection in individual states, yeah. and uh, fortunately, they you know they they won some things, they lost some things. But um, uh, there was recent when they got the musical licensing collective uh, passed in two thousand and whatever it was nineteen two thousand twenty, that giving protection to pre nineteen seventy two sound recordings wow. was part of it. So there is some protection now for pre seventy two sound recordings. That it's crazy to me how the whole industry, the music industry and the law music law, is constantly, especially with streaming and things like that and all this the stuff, that it's still evolving. That it's still you think they would have had it figured out by now, right? Well they did. They did <laughs> until the little digital right. things until, came yeah. along. Until yeah. people started you know Sampling and all this, you know, putting stuff on their YouTube channel and for free. And well, yeah, and it used to be that you had to buy physical product to get a copy of to get a quality copy of a song. Right, and right. once that was gone, where you know, BitTorrent and everybody was trading songs. Yeah. That's the copyright law just did not contemplate that. Uh, there was nothing under there that uh, you know could could immediately address that stuff yeah. as far as the revenues from it, and so it's taken us a good twenty years um, for Spotify to develop truthfully, right, right, yeah. and and to start earning money, and and now uh, the lack of uh, physical sales, you know, they went down the tube, and that was a important stream for comp or for composition owners, yeah, publishers. It's little bit by little bit being replaced. Yeah. I heard an interesting story recently. Uh, I was listening to an audio book about the new music business and all how to survive in the new music business. And what they, there was a band, you know, you talk about a, a loophole and, and sort of finding a way to kind of like trick the system. This band, I don't remember the name of the band, but they went in and they put on Spotify 
uh, like 30 or 40 seconds of silence and they get, they got all their, they got on social media and got all their friends to put it on repeat, to stream it on repeat. And they said, the money we make from this, these streams, from this silence song, uh, we're going to fund our new album and then you'll get like a discount or something if you participate in this or if you want us to make a new album, sign on and do this for us. And they were able to make like 20 grand or yeah, something like that for releasing a nothing for releasing nothing and i thought that now that's tricking the system right there that's thinking yeah i and remember got away with I re- it, you know on that time but for now yeah, yeah spotify right? spotify <laughs> fixed that they came along and said oh hang on yeah. wait a minute stop yeah. stop but uh it's just interesting how um the industry works like that and, and uh, how how tricky it can be and how you, if, if you're not armed with the right information you can either do well or you can get screwed right um and, and that's, that's, I think, where the Donald Passman book will help you because he identifies all the sources of income. You know, for instance, uh, there's, there's interactive streaming. There's non-interactive streaming, you know. Right. Um, we don't have a performance royalty for terrestrial radio, for our radio stations, for sound recordings. We're one of the few countries that, oh. that radio stations don't pay record labels for using their sound recordings. We're talking about the sound recording yeah. contract. Almost every other country does. Now, BM, um, you know, the radio stations have to pay the composition owners. Right. BMI and ASCAP yeah. and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how songwriters pretty much make their money when it comes to radio. And publishers, and, yeah, too. Publishers, and publishers, yeah, right. because every dollar that comes into BMI gets split between the writer or writers and the publisher, whoever owns right. the publisher. That's the performance royalty. But there's no money that goes to the record label that owns the sound recording wow. that's playing on the radio. That spends all the money, basically, to put the studio. Sales, stuff, yeah. right? That's generally sales for the, um, and and that's that battle has been going on for forever and ever. I don't I don't know where that's going to end up. You know, yeah. um, you know. On one hand, you say I, I know what the record labels say is. Wait a second, you're using our sound recordings radio to make a lot of money in advertising, and then the radio stations turn around and say, Wait a second, you wouldn't have a hit if we didn't play your records. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, people so, will yeah. argue on both sides. Well, so. Back to you personally. Now, I know that you're a musician. You play guitar and things like that. Right. And you were mm-hmm. telling me that you came to town. I think you and I came to town the same year, 94? I got here at the very end of 93. 93. Okay, so yeah. yeah. No, no, so, the beginning of 93. I got here okay, in the beginning Okay, so you were about a year before me. I mm-hmm. came in in like spring of 94. Yeah. I came to town and uh, joined this band called Texas Sea that uh, later ended up being Lone Star, and I'm I, still in that band. Keech, I remember that band. I remember used to play down Texas-y, on... Yeah. used to play down on 2nd Avenue at the uh, Gaylord at Wild place. Horse. Wild Horse, yeah. yeah. I know I came down and heard you before. We were the first band to play in that place. We, that- we, we were so the first band that when we were playing that place... They were still soldering wires. They had just built it. It was brand new. And they needed a band to play uh, like a house, not a house band. They weren't looking for a house band, but they were looking for bands to fill in like a two-week slot or something like that. And uh, we went in there and uh, basically no audition. There were bands all over town auditioning for that thing, for that role, for that you know gig. And uh, Dean, our keyboard player, Dean's such a great salesman, and he's such a great band leader um, and the founder of Lone Star, actually. And he was the one that was talking to the guy on the phone. He kind of knew the guy. And the guy said, well, you've got to come in and audition, just like all the other bands. And Dean's like, we can't because we're out on the road working. Hello. You know, <laughs> he said, we can't come and audition. We're, work- we're a working band. We're good. He goes, I promise you, we- we're a great band. We have great vocals. I wouldn't even be a part of this if it wasn't, right? Mm-hmm. And the guy goes, yeah. 
yeah, yeah, you're right. So we went in there sight unseen and played and ended up being one of their favorite bands that they they would try to book us all the time. So we were kind of the house band in a way, you know, when we would do other gigs out on the road. But anyway, we were like the first band there. Well, I think I told you that I met Dean probably... Maybe it was right when I got to town in 93 and I was looking for an engineering gig. Right. right. And he was working at a studio south of town here uh, in the Antioch area. Uh, there was a producer named, you may remember him, named Jerry Cupid. Yeah, right. I did some videos for him. Oh, did I you? shot a yeah, couple of videos right. for so some of his I artists. went down to his studio and Dean was starting to get busy with, with your band. Yeah. And, uh, and he wasn't able to do as many engineering gigs at Jerry's studio. So I remember meeting him and he, he walked me through the studio and showed me the equipment and that sort of stuff that's cool so yeah. so you came to town in 93 and as an in, as wanting to be a guitar player slash engineer you yeah. were wanting the music business mm-hmm. and um how long did did that path go until you finally discovered sort of the law thing and there must have been a fork in the road at some point that said hey wait a minute i think i want to be an entertainment attorney like a lawyer yeah yeah well i had um I had had a very small studio in Hendersonville that was more an overdub and, and acoustic guitar um, vocal kind of studio up in Hendersonville. Then I had a good friend who was a sideman for the band Alabama for 20 years and still is when they go out. He still does it. Who um, who was here in town, but he was he was out on the road all the time. And he wanted to build a studio in East Nashville back when East Nashville was a little rough. Now, oh, East, right, yeah. right, East Nashville is a high dollar place. Uh, now, now the but, rich people live there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it was kind of rough back then. And he and um, and so we sort of combined our gear. And um, I guess that would have been about ninety four, ninety five, something like that, and opened up that studio. Um, and then um, so we we're we we're cranking along. It was I I call it I used to call it a pro demo studio. We were not doing George Strait records. Right. You know? So you couldn't have like a drummer in there or something. I was oh, just we like did. vocal. Yeah. You did? Oh, yeah. it was yeah, more we than... had a drum booth. We we could do full five piece band. We had a B three in there. Oh wow. Um we had we actually had a, a grand in there. We had a Yamaha C whatever, not this not the big one, not the C eight, the smaller Yamaha piano. What system did you record on? Was it um at that tape? time yeah, we had a we we were that was the ADAT years. Oh, okay, right, yeah, right. Of course, yeah. and so we we looked around and we were trying to find like an old Ampex two inch machine, but nobody was using tape anymore, and tape was becoming expensive. Um, I remember that uh, we had uh, Teddy from um, Alabama. Teddy Gentry. Yeah, yeah, he had a two inch sixteen track. I think it was an Ampex machine. And he brought it in there a few times. I think that's the same thing Dean had. Dean had a two-inch, 16-track uh, tape machine that he used to do demos on and stuff like that. that Drum was, sounded that. great. And he also, then, he, then he went to ADAT after that. Right. Now, for those of you that don't know what the ADAT is, ADAT was a—it's funny. ADAT was a audio recording system that used video cassettes. It used Super VHS— God, I can't believe I'm even saying these words. Super VHS cassettes that you you could buy from the store, and you loaded those up, and the machines would record eight tracks at it per machine, and you could link them together. That was the cool part. You could take three ADATs, and I think they were about $2,500 or something at the time. You could buy three ADATs. You could buy one and then record eight tracks and then buy a second one later down the line once you had some more money, and you could link them together together. And they would read off of each other, and you had a 24-track studio, but you had to load three cassettes, 
if you wanted that. You had to load. Each project had like three cassettes bundled together, video cassettes, VHS cassettes that you put in there. Yeah, yeah. It, but it was still cheaper than buying uh, a roll of, of two-inch tape. Of course, yeah. Two-inch tape was probably around 150 to $200 yes. at the time for mm-hmm. a roll. Of course, now... And you'd only get 15 minutes Yeah, right. if exactly. you're running at 30 inches per second. Which is maybe three songs or four songs, yeah. I remember, mm-hmm. on, a, on a roll. Yeah. But anyway, so you guys, you recorded that. So what? when did the law... Uh, thing come up. Yeah, that? you know, I had kind of had some unfortunate events happen in my life in 96, and all of a sudden I was raising three kids by myself. And uh, and so I thought, what do I do now? And uh, and and I thought, well, what am I, you know, I thought, I'd always loved the law. I mean, I loved reading about the law, and, and, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to go to law school and become an entertainment lawyer, That's you cool. know? And were you still, when you were going to law school, were you still doing the audio thing and like yeah. music and... Yeah, uh, because I went to the, um, it, it's called Nashville School of Law, which is a night school here oh, in right. in Nashville. It's a four year night program instead of a three year day program, and um, and so I I would go to school at night, uh, three nights, sometimes four nights a week, depending on which year you're in, and then uh, and then work in the studio during the day. My kids were really little at the time too, so Gosh, how do you do that? How does a single uh, dad work and you know, yeah, you didn't. I didn't sleep much. I was glad I was young then because yeah. I couldn't do You'd it. You have to have a nanny. You have to pay uh, someone to watch the I kids. Was, sure. I was so lucky um, that where we had our studio again was in East Nashville, and it was an old house that had been added onto uh, where we had you know our studio. So there were actually two studios in the same building. Some friends did one side, we did the other, and um, and it was set up like a house, so my my kids could really come down and watch TV. We had little places for them to color and we had a little bed and so they would just hang out there a lot Uh, now at night school I had as fortunate I had friends and then my my wife my current wife uh, at the end um, was so helpful to me I mean it's great I couldn't have done it without her and so you how long did the law school take to 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 where you were actually a lawyer yeah it was four years it was four years so um, I, I was licensed in 2003 finally Wow, that's great. And so, what what was that like in the beginning? Did you, um, as a lawyer now, now you're a lawyer, yeah. but still kind of probably doing a little bit of music here and there until you, you know, get. Did you start with a firm, like a law firm, or did you start your own thing? I, I was. I initially didn't really have a job when I got out of law school. I, I had clerked for a law firm while I was in law school. Um, but there just wasn't a position available there. It was a small law firm. What does a clerk do? Is that just handling all the paper things? And yeah, at that time there stuff? wasn't. Now we have electronic filing for most court papers. Everybody mm-hmm. does everything electronically. Back then there there wasn't. Everything was on paper. So I'd go back and forth to the courthouse every day and file things. Things that the law, the actual lawyers don't want to do, right? They're, yeah, they're I mean, making big yeah, deals. Yeah, and uh, sometimes I'd help with legal research. Um, I'd always proofread. Uh, to see if I could spot typos or maybe even something that was out of order in a particular paper. So it was a good legal education working there. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And so uh, that just was your path. And how did the, I guess you got so busy as a lawyer uh, working your way up there that the music kind of just was still there, but it, but it just kind of faded away a little bit and you just yeah. became like full lawyer? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I still call myself a guitar player with a day job. There but, you go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, you know, it, uh, I've, I've always been involved with the National Jazz Workshop. 
um, and, and doing what I can, but you know, I can't go out on the road and do a gig. Yeah. You know, I've, I've got cases. I, I do litigation and transactions, which means I go to court and I just handle contracts. But if, if you're representing somebody in court, there are always deadlines. There's always something going on. You can't just say I'm going away now for a month yeah. and, and doing stuff. In fact, it's kind of hard to get away for two weeks. Sometimes you really have to clear your schedule and make sure some, you don't have some court date that you have to appear, uh, yeah. that you can't, you can't push aside. So, yeah. and, 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 you know, I still I still consider myself in the music business. Um, you know, I've got music acts and we're always we're always faced with challenges and 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 doing deals. So yeah. it's sort of just instead of playing guitar as much anymore, um, I'm now negotiating deals and which is fun. I like it. That's great. Yeah. Um, how often do you have to. Um I would say go and refer to your books and things like that. Is there, are there cases I'm trying to imagine in my mind, someone comes up with a really good question and you have to like pull out a book or something, or are you just a walking encyclopedia of all Oh no. And that's one of the myths about lawyers is that they know the law. Um, they can just like just know it off the top of their head, everything. Yeah, yeah it's it's rare. I almost always have well, so to do research. Well, so far every conversation I've had with you, you've been like, you, you have an answer right away, you know, so. Well, it may be something that I've encountered before Yeah. then. But uh, I've yeah, I've got one right now that involves copyright terminations. Uh, you, I I know we've spoken about this, but when a songwriter uh, is employed to write songs and he transfers his copyright over to the publisher, that's what a staff writer, a songwriter, will do. Right, right. In exchange for salary and a portion of the royalties, yeah. our copyright law allows that songwriter or their heirs or their heirs to terminate that transfer and to get that copyright back. Because that's that's what the songwriter does under song. They say, this is my copyright. I'm the author. I created it. Now I'm giving it to you, the publishing company. You go make some money with that. Pay me a salary this whole time so I can pay my rent. Yeah. And then let's split the money that you get. Okay. You know, it's yeah, not I always see. split, yeah. but... Um, but it, the copyright law says, hey, we'll let the publishing company exploit that copyright uh, if it's post-1978, it's 35 to 40 years. And then the heirs can say, I want to get that entire copyright back, in it, or the songwriter themselves, you know, if they're still alive. And, and I have one right now that it's just, it's never come up. These particular facts have never come up. Uh, and, and so I have to do a lot of research because I'm going to have to go in and try to convince this court why my point of view is right. Yeah. And the court's going to have to try to interpret copyright law and say, what did, what did the Senate and the House, you know, what, what did our legislature, our Congress up there, what did they mean? What did they want with this law? Yeah. And that happens all the time. It's just never come up in the court. And so as a lawyer, your job is to position this thing in the light most favorable to your client and try to figure out a way to argue why your position's the best. Is that a jury kind of thing or a judge? Basically, a uh, judge this one, just... Yeah, this one, uh, generally judges will decide issues of law and juries decide facts. Oh, I see. Yeah. Now, if, if they have things called bench trials and that's where you agree that the judge is going to be the jury as well. Uh And so the judge will decide facts there. But when interpreting statutes, what a statute means, that's something that's just a little bit outside of what a jury 
probably be incapable of doing. Yeah, right. Um, and that's, but more importantly, that's an issue of law that a judge will decide. So wow. that's, and that's kind of a nice thing because I'm not going to be dealing with a jury. I'm just talking to a judge who's another lawyer who, you know, who's been on, now on the bench, but typically right. most judges have practiced law in the past too. Yeah. So it's, uh, uh, it's 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 a little bit different than talking to twelve people looking at you like I don't like lawyers in the first place. Why should I like you? <laughs> yeah, but you know people say things like uh, oh lawyers are so expensive and all this stuff. But then when you think about it, like going back to the, like Billy Joel and things like that, who you know probably would have uh, benefited if a lawyer had writ- read the contract before they signed it. You're thinking you're like paying up front in a way. For right. something that could cost you much more later on, you know. Yeah, you know, I think Billy Ray Cyrus got in a lot of trouble too at the front end uh, with, with his management deal, oh. and and I can't tell you how many times you know people they they sign things on cocktail napkins right. and yeah. and they're so hungry and they want it to happen so bad that this mm-hmm. is an opportunity and they jump at it. Right. The problem with that, and I'll just go back to a little bit of contract laws. We've spoke a little bit that you're presumed to have read and understand what mm-hmm. you sign. But what happens is, <clears throat> you know, people get together, and I've seen it, it happens in bars all the time, where there's a band that's becoming very popular, and all of a sudden, some investor mm-hmm. wants to come they in. see dollar signs. Yeah, and they say, well, we'll finance this, we'll get you a bus, or we'll pay for your record, or whatever, you know, we'll, we'll pay for your recordings, we'll, whatever. whatever. And, and they come to some sort of agreement, and they say, we know what we agreed upon. We don't need a lawyer to do this. Let's just write yeah. a paper out amongst ourselves. It's the ourselves. wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Right. Totally. And so they get this, this, this document that they write, and all of a sudden the fight starts. Mm-hmm. And they come to see me with this document. And I can't tell what the agreement was from the document. Now, what happens with courts when that you say, this is the only document that exists, Judge, the first thing they do is they look and they say, can I tell what the agreement was just by looking at this document? And if they can do that, if the court can decides, and this is another one of these matters of law, a jury's not going to do this. A judge is yeah. going to look at a document and say, I'm going to try to figure out what the agreement was. If they can, then nothing else comes into evidence except that document. You can't get so your client legal and all that. Yeah, you can't get your client to come in and testify and say, "Hey, I know that's what the document says, but this is what we actually agreed to verbally." It, that that yeah. that'll be excluded if the document is completely unambiguous, right? right? But when you get cocktail napkins and documents that are drafted by non-lawyers, almost every time they're going to be ambiguous. They're going to be things that are missing. There there's going to be things that conflict within the document itself. And both parties are swearing that they agreed to two different things. So is that why you think, in your opinion, why lawyers speak and the words and the, the, all the, the wording in a, law, a legal document is so complicated? Is because, like what you said, it needs to narrow it down to a specific thing. No, I think that, that legalese is a curse on the legal profession. It's, it's been around forever. And it's awful. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm an adjunct professor at National School of Law. I teach at National School of Law, and I teach legal writing there. Yeah. And that's one of my main focuses is write these documents in plain English so anybody can understand them. Yeah. Um, so I hate those documents. I hate drafting them. I hate reading them. Uh, and, but they're there. 
and they will always be there. Do you well. think they're there to confuse the the unsuspecting person, maybe, or something? No, I think it's because lawyers are trained that way. They're trained to use that language, and they're and and I think sometimes client clients expect them to use that language. All those yeah. those long sentences, those fifty word sentences with the therefores and the where and. You know, fiduciary responsibility. Well, yeah, now, there are some legal words, you know, some legally yeah. opter- operative words that have to be there. But as far as those long, long sentences where your eyes start twirling and you don't know what they say, that's bad drafting. That's yeah. bad drafting. So, um, any rate, uh, that if if the judge can't figure out what the document says, then he will start letting people get on the witness stand and say, yeah. I swear this is what we meant. I swear this. But the problem with that is you now get into a swearing contest between yeah. two people. And a judge who doesn't know either of these people has got to make a decision quickly because yeah. judges have lots of cases open. Right. And that is so dangerous. That's so dangerous from a litigation side because your client may be telling the truth, but he appears untruthful. Yeah. And the judge has to make an immediate immediate credibility decision for the most part. He yeah. may say, I just don't trust that person. I'm going for that. That's why documents have to be drafted correctly. It, it's strange to me how a judge would look at something like that and not just decide what's fair. Like, oh, this, this manager came up and put this thing in front of their face. They signed it. Now they own all their publishing. That's not fair to me. But but it's really like you said what's written that that's what they look at not yeah. what's fair yeah, yeah. and 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 one of the black letter um, lessons in contract law is the courts will not interfere with somebody's private agreement right and if you agree to it even if it's unfair yeah that's you your business yeah. that's your business we're not going to go in and rewrite this contract because it's not fair so you hear that folks Hire a lawyer and get them to read the contract and explain it to you and make sure you understand what is involved and what you're going to end up with down the line, you know, 10 years down the line. Yeah. Yeah, if you can. Now, one of the nice things, in in Nashville at least, I don't know, because I haven't practiced law in Los Angeles, but when I first started practicing, uh, there were still the traditional publishing route for songwriters. Songwriters who were just songwriters would get signed to publishing deals. Now it's usually an artist writer that gets signed because right. they a little bit different. But the the big publishing companies, um, you know, they would they'd want to sign a writer uh, for two or three years, or maybe two years plus a couple of option years. Uh, you know, and of course, in those publishing contracts, the writer has to deliver a certain amount of songs every year. But the publishing company pays for demos and gives them advances. Well, one of the things they used to do, they still do it, um, but it's not as prevalent, is the publishing company would advance the writer um, money to pay in a private attorney to review the agreement. Really? And the reason being is one way you can overcome a bad contract is if it's absolutely unconscionable. You know, they call them contracts of adhesion where one party has such a bargaining, a superior bargaining uh, position that the other party really had no choice but to sign this thing. That is a very, very tough thing to prove, by the way. Don't ever think that's an easy thing to do. It's very tough to prove. But the publishing companies got smart. And yeah. they said, we just don't even want to deal with those claims. So yeah. we'll just go hire whatever lawyer, whomever lawyer you want. We'll pay for it. We'll yeah. pay for it and make sure you get independent legal advice. Yeah. And so that, for a lot of lawyers, that was a good source of income because, yeah. you know, they always were, were you know, referring 
uh, new songwriters out to, yeah. to New and the Warriors. The money was there, and they got paid, and they didn't have to worry yeah. about trying to you know say, okay, I'll do it pro bono or whatever. But so much now, I see, you know, gosh, I see everything. It, it's you, the, the ones that are particularly troublesome are, are where they're new artists, new writers that have some talent. They may not be ready yet, but they have some talent, and there's some local investor in Oklahoma or Nebraska or Michigan, mm-hmm. and and they they craft some sort of odd deal that could cripple them down the line. Right. And they know what they're writing, or they get someone to write it to where it says, hey, I can own all their publishing or all their masters or whatever. Yeah, or they write it themselves, Yeah, and, it, and it's just a mess. And then all of a sudden, this act matures, and they are ready, and they're starting to get some label interest. The label comes and says, have you signed anything? And they say, well, yeah, we've got this thing from Michigan. And the label's not going to sign you until you get that Michigan thing cleared up somehow. And usually what that means, depending on what the agreement says, but if it's something that cannot be overcome, somebody's going to have to pay the Michigan party some money so you can sign with the major. Wow. So I want to get your opinion on a couple of things uh, that I've heard um, that are interesting to me that I just have questions for, and hopefully my audience will too. Um, one of the interesting things, and I just want your comment on it, uh, one of the interesting things I heard about um, uh, MC Hammer was that when he started his deal, he was a smart guy. I mean, he would sell his little audio tapes out of the trunk of his car, and he'd go into clubs and do his dance thing, and he would get everybody hyped up on, on his act and everything and say, you know, I, I'm selling my tape. Meet me out in the parking lot or whatever, and he would sell merch. And he he kept receipts, and he, he had documentation that he was making this amount of money selling his own CDs, and then when a record label approached him for, with the deal, and they would he would read through the deal and go, I'm not signing this. Why would I sign this? I'm already making, I've proven that I make more money. Would you sign this? You know, and the record labels were so kind of on the, on the lower end of that. They were kind of like, okay, all right, well, we'll, uh, we'll sign, we'll, we'll modify it. And he ended up getting a huge percentage of his record sales, which is unheard of for a first time artist like that. Mm-hmm. And then he got such a great deal that he, it was a millionaire in no time. Of course he kind of squandered it away yeah. because he always thought that money was always going to be coming in and all that. Sure. What do you think about yeah, I, I never really heard of that. Um, and you're exactly right, as you think, well, if I can distribute myself and keep 100%, why do I need the major label and only keep 15%? Because that's what a typical 15%, it used to be 15% yeah. of manufacturer-suggested list price. That's so what you're the basically label- just giving that away so that you can get some radio airplay. You're already selling product. You know, It's just a matter of getting some more promotion in radio, which the labels have right. in-house. I think, I think, though, you still need that muscle from major labels to break on a major way. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are exceptions to that, but uh, you know, if, if you want to be on radio... And reporting radios on heavy rotation, yeah, it, it still takes some muscle. You need the big guns, yeah, and that's kind of what he was wanting, obviously, you know. And so, but he was able to craft such a great deal, from what I heard, that he got such a large percentage of every. Because basically, what record labels do is they say, for every, you know, we're going to loan you, the, we're going to spend money to make this album, and then, and before it's recouped. 
then we're going to get a certain percentage to pay back, blah, blah, blah. And then mm-hmm. a certain amount goes into reserves right. and all that, which right. they hardly ever release. You know, you have to fight for those. And uh, he was able to get such a large percentage that he was immediately, as soon as he started selling records, he was kind of on the upper end of the, the label. He was like making all the money. Oh, good for him. Strange story. <laughs> yeah, good um, for him. Then, another one that I wanted your comment was um, Shenandoah back in the day. They, uh, you know, they started out with the name Shenandoah and mm-hmm. they started playing, um, getting some success on country radio and all that. And then uh, when they reached the height of their success, um, which would have been back in the early 90s, uh, somebody came along and said, oh, by the way, we own the name Shenandoah. You owe us uh, millions right. of dollars. And they got it. They had to, they almost bankrupted them. Right. Um, and it was one of those things, from what I understand, was like, oh, I thought you, you know, in the be- I thought you in the beginning uh, cleared the name. Oh, I thought you did it. I thought you did it as a label. I thought you did it as a band. And um, everybody right. was kind of caught by surprise. Yeah, that I, I remember reading about that. That was before I was a lawyer, and I haven't read through that case, but that's a trademark issue. Right. is what that is. That's a trademark issue. And um, uh, the whomever the, the other Shenandoah probably registered their trademark. Um, through uh, the right channels and so forth. Well, yeah, you read the register for- with, the, with the United States Patent and Trademark Office uh, for particular goods or services. And they prob- their goods were probably records, mm-hmm. musical recordings, and their services were probably live performances. And if they used it first... Because trademark rights arise through use, not registration. Ah, registration gives you some benefits. If you register with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, it gives you benefits. Yeah. But if there's somebody who uses your trademark before you do, it doesn't matter. If you, if you register later and you haven't used it first, you can be out of luck. And that probably is what happened to them. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that you know, they didn't even come forward until... After they reached so a bunch of success, so I imagine somebody in their camp probably said, "Wait, wait, hold! Don't, don't, don't file a lawsuit yet. Yeah. Wait until you know, you know, a certain time." And then when Shenandoah was huge, then all of a sudden they say, "Oh, by the way, I, I don't know. That may have happened. That can be a little dangerous to do from a plaintiff's side because uh-huh. if you don't act on your rights when you know they've been violated, there's some defenses on the other side. Yeah. Uh, it's called latches. So uh-huh. if you know you've been injured." And you just sit back and say, wait a second, I'm going to wait for my injury to get worse, Yeah, which is what it is. That can, that can be trouble. There also are statute of limitations problems. If you wait too long, you can yeah. violate a statute of limitations. Maybe they, so, maybe they had a lawyer that said, you know, we'll, we'll wait the maximum amount of time sure. and then let's hit them right at this time. Yeah. You know? yeah. But I remember uh, talking to Mike McGuire, the drummer, and him saying that, yeah, it, it almost bankrupted them because they had to... They kind of lost that case. They kind of they the other people had a good case, and they proved that they were Shenandoah before and yeah. all that. And they mm-hmm. it was and our manager at the time, Bill Carter, who used to manage them when all that was going on, um, he said the same thing. He said, "Yeah, everybody was kind of caught by surprise. It was like one of those. I thought you did it." And they yeah. were saying, "Well, I thought you did it." Well, that's always something to think of. Is is when you're getting a band together, is uh, your band name is a product, just like you know, selling gasoline or selling shoes or anything. And, and if somebody else is using that name for the same, you know, the same goods or services, the same type of goods or services that you're providing, then that can be a problem. So, um, more unique names are better. Yeah. We went, when we first registered the name Lone Star, because our, like I said, our manager was Bill Carter. 
at the time who had already been through that with Shenandoah. So he's like, we're going to make double, triple, quadruple sure that nobody has the name Lone Star as a band. Well, there was a band out of England, I think. Mm-hmm. It was called Lone Star. It was like with a space in the middle. Yeah. But they still had, you know, still Lone Star. Mm-hmm. And so we had to we had to pay to buy. They weren't active. They, they made some albums in the 80s and mm-hmm. like late 80s or something. They were kind of a rock band, kind of similar to Led Zeppelin or something like that. Right. But uh, they disbanded. But the, there was one guy that owned the name Lone Star. And so we had to pay to own the name Lone Star. We yep. had to buy him out. And yeah. we did. And then everything was hunky-dory. Yeah. Well, somebody must have looked at that. You know, trademarks can be abandoned, too. If you stop using them, you stop, you lose your rights. Right, right. So, you know, there may have been an argument there that it was abandoned. But yeah. who knows? I don't, that's Somebody would have to look into that. Uh, so, yeah. So, folks, if you're going to put a band together, <laughs> uh, make sure your agreement between the band members is solid. Um, and everybody understands who either owns or controls the band. If there's a band leader or a band owner or whatever, or if you're all going to equal, I would suggest that you make everybody equal unless they leave the band. If they leave the band and they say, I'm out of here, then they lose their rights to that band. You know? Right. What it would be is a, it's a partnership. Right. And a partnership is an entity separate from the members. Yeah. And so what it is is or separate from the partners. That's what they, the partnership is. So if you have four partners in a band, there are five entities there, four individuals in the partnership is its own entity that would own the intellectual property. And so if one of the partners leaves, you just got to have a partnership agreement that says, hey, the partnership yeah. owns the trademark, yeah. the band name, the right yeah. to do this. And so if you get a new partner, you replace your drummer, replace your singer, they become now a part of the partnership and and the, 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 the intellectual property stays with the with the partnership. Wow. I had heard an interesting story that uh, Tim Rushlow, the lead singer with Little Texas, he left the band and gone to do his own thing. And when the band was trying to gear up and go and do, you know, some shows and things like that, they invited uh, Tim to come back in the band and sing. And he said, "No, no, I'm doing my own thing. I'm good. But just send me the check." And they're like, "What do you mean?" And he's saying, "Well, it says right here in our contract that you know, if if anything." You know, uh, the band Little Texas starts to tour again or does anything that I'm still part owner in it. So he clearly left the band, I guess, um, and was doing his own thing. And the other band wanted to tour. Um, and I guess he wouldn't join. So they were going to tour without him. So he was basically saying, well, yeah, send me send me the check. And he was supposedly got it. I mean, he yeah, there was something know. that was written in there that said that I am still a member of Little Texas, even though I'm not touring right now. I'm not touring with you. I don't know yeah, how he worked that. I don't. Maybe they had some sort of partnership agreement with the sunset clause. I I don't know. I know Dale Gray well though. Their drummer, yeah, the little drummer Texas Dale, drummer. Yeah. I'll ask him, but I, I probably won't be free to tell you. <laughs> so. Yeah, because I, I just remember their reaction was like, "What do you mean?" And he's like, "Yeah, just says it right there in the contract." You know, it's just like, um, yeah. send me the check. And I mean, sometimes that that would be something that I may consider putting in a partnership agreement, where where um, you know the four partners go and and crank this band along all of a sudden they start making some money and one partner wants to leave well some of that money that the band's going to make after that partner leaves is partly due to that leaving right partners efforts they had something to do with the success so right and so you may have something in that partnership agreement that that says that leaving partner is entitled to uh x number of dollars in year one 
fewer dollars in year two, and maybe after the end of three years, they get nothing more from the partnership. Wow. Now, of course, that'd be independent from any songwriting royalties that they had with their publishing thing. But, you know, it's like if you're out on the road or you're selling merchandise or, or whatever, you know, other, wow. other sources of income. So, and that is pretty, I think that is, that would be something pretty reasonable to put in a partnership agreement. Yeah. Um, sometimes I see them where there's a key man in the partnership, and that's right. usually the lead singer. Uh, of course, yeah. Maybe right. that's the deal they had. Maybe they had some I, I kind of know. thing written in the beginning that it's yeah, kind of my band, but you know we're we're going to mm-hmm. be a group. You know we'll share in the profit, but I have all the decision making and own the name or something like that. Yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, those partnership agreements are private. There's no way to see them unless somebody yeah. uh, lets you read them. So now, a question I have is, um, you know, the music business said that book was written. What was the book again? It's uh, the the author is Donald Passman, mm-hmm. a Los Angeles lawyer. Um, and it's, I believe it's, I may have a copy on my shelf here. But well, it's written in it. California. So now I guess my question is, is um, a lot of laws are state, they're, they go by state to state. They're different state to state. How would you write a book on the music business or the legal thing like that about the music business? Is that sort of based on sort of a nationwide thing? Because I know it changes from state to state, right? Uh, not copyright law. Oh, I and, see. And, and so what happens is the federal government, is, uh, has there's a supremacy clause, and it says we're the supreme government, and we let, you know, this is a big argument right now going on in politics, oh, okay. but uh, the states are allowed to do what they want, but if we decide we want to occupy an area of the law exclusively, we can do it. And it's called preemption. That's what they call it. So if... Our Congress in Washington says we want to get in an area of law and exclude everybody else. Um, we're going to do it, and and copyright law is one of those areas where they did it. So there really is only federal copyright law that applies to all fifty states. Wow, that's I guess that's good to know because uh, musicians that are all over the all over the United States um, <clears throat> they can read this book and. Um, which is called, what is it called again? It's Everything, Everything You Wanted to Know About the Music Business. Everything You Want to Know About the Music Business by Donald Passman. Passman. Um, you know that no matter what state you're in, um, it's going to apply to you. And so it's a, it's a great idea to get that book, pick up that book and read it. And the great thing, like I said, it. what I said before, the, the, the great thing about that book, it is so re- readable. It's written in plain English, and he is a funny, funny writer. And he tells real life stories. It's not, it's not a textbook like you would read in law school. He's you know, telling, lost in it. You, yeah, he's telling like, real stories about real transactions. And, and you can refer back to certain passages if you have a question about something. You could just open the book and go, "Oh, that has to do with this," you know, publishing or whatever. Yeah, yeah. He separates it up into uh, relationships you may have with an attorney, with a personal manager, with a publisher, with a record label. He talks about streaming royalties. He talks about all that. And, and talks about some of the pitfalls. It's a, it's a real good way to get yourself educated on where the money is flowing. Yeah. I had heard a story that the, uh, the singer with um, Midnight Oil was a lawyer. <laughs> and I thought, well, that explains why they were so successful or why they were able to get a deal because um, you yeah. know, he was a good you know, Midnight Oil. The, I didn't know that. Um, that uh, band from the 80s. I remember the- them. Mid '80s, early mm-hmm. mid mid to late '80s, or something like that. Yeah, and and from what I heard, is the singer was a lawyer and um, real activist too. You know, you notice mm-hmm. a lot of their songs are sort of politically charged, and right. um, and he's always been a real advocate down in Australia for uh, the Aborigines' rights and things like that. And, it's uh, it's really amazing how many musicians and uh, 
children of musicians or lawyers. Right. Um, I think a lot of people don't uh, probably know who Barry Beckett was. Barry Sounds Beckett. familiar, yeah. Uh, he was the Muscle Shoals, one of the Muscle oh, Shoals right, players, right. piano player. He came and produced all kinds of stuff from Kenny Chesney to uh, just a session player, great producer. Um, what do they call it? The, the Swampers. That's what the Muscle Shoals people are. Yeah, the Swampers down the Muscle Shoals, the players that would play in a lot of the records right. and stuff like and that. And Barry Beckett came to Nashville and did very, very well. But his son Matthew is a, a lawyer over in Barry Hill here and. It's kind of neat to. I've spoken to him a few times, and and it, it, he remembers living in Muscle Shoals and the Rolling Stones being in his living room because yeah. they were recording I, one of them, Sticky Fingers or something down there yeah. in Muscle Shoals. And he says, "Oh yeah, I remember the Rolling Stones being at my house wow. in '60 something." You know, that's crazy. Yeah, I know the. Yeah, they went down there to Muscle Shoals to record an album because they were big fans of all of the. Uh, players, the Swampers that came out of there, and that sound that they had down in the south, down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a unique period of music. That, of course, it won't be replicated because, no. well, truthfully, you pro- you've been in a lot of studios in Nashville, mm-hmm. and and you know, in the early days, you go up. Music Row has completely changed now, mm-hmm. but in the the old days, it was just old houses up and down, right. And, and people would just figure a way to build a recording studio in a house. Right. And I came here, I moved to Nashville from Los Angeles, and I was working in studios out there. And, and Those were buildings. Those were huge buildings and things. You know, right? right. And they would have engineers design these things. And, you know, they were, they were way different. And I was walking in and you'd go in and say, well, where's the drums recorded in this place? And they say, well, go around the corner, yeah. past the bathroom, yeah. and the drum booth is in there. Yeah, we, but, we, we very carefully designed every square foot of this place. But that's, I always thought, was, was how, how records sounded unique, you know? Because they had different recording environments and kind of almost like a part of the sound, like almost like a piece of gear or another musician or something like that. The studio space would kind of dictate a little bit of the vibe or the sound or something. Because yeah, like you know, engineers have gone down to Fame and Muscle Shoals Sound, and they've measured every square inch of those rooms and try to replicate right. them. What is it about that's that's the shape of the room or something? Right? Yeah. What is the walls made of? What yeah. you know to try to replicate uh, you know some Aretha Franklin sound? Wow. You know, when I was in Canyon, uh, in in we went and recorded our first album. First of all, all of our albums were recorded down in Muscle Shoals, but at Muscle Shoals Sound, the one that was right off the Tennessee River there, that used to be an Army depot, like a, a, a I guess it was a Army Reserves depot or something like that. Right. And um, they turned it into a recording studio, and we would record our albums down there. And it was like the officers' um, mess hall, or no, it was like a bar in there. There was like a whole little club in there, like with a bar and a bar stools and a pinball machine and a pool table and all that stuff. And you'd go in there and hang out and you could just see pictures on the wall of like Linda Ronstadt and the Stones and yeah. uh, Julian Lennon. He recorded I, his uh, I remember first those. album down there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of history there. It was really fun. Yeah. I've not been to that studio. That's on my, it's on my list. My wife and I just want to go down for a weekend sometime and, and hang out in Muscle Shoals. Yeah, it was one of those things that we were down there. I was young. I was probably 25 at the time. I had no idea of the history of that place when I right. walked in there. And I was just like, oh, it's just a studio. You know, there's the board and there's a, where the drums are. And, and there's a little rec room in there. And they were mm-hmm. explaining, no, this, was, this is like a lot of famous albums have been recorded here. You know, and they, I looked at the pictures on the wall and stuff. I was sort of naive. I didn't know. But now that I look back on that, I, think, I see all the history. That's pretty neat there. you got to work there. Yeah, it was really, there was just something about that place. There was kind of a vibe about it and you get those 
Muscle Shoals players in there, you know, Roger Hawkins and David right. Hood and mm-hmm. those guys. and Spooner um, Oldham. Steve Nathan and those mm-hmm. guys. A lot of guys from Nashville would come down to Muscle Shoals because it's proximity-wise was pretty close. Sure. I think Mac McAnally probably worked there a lot, he too. He did. He played acoustic guitar on our first album. Did he? Yeah. He was the session leader, and I didn't know what that meant at the time, but... Uh, but he uh, he was the yeah he played fabulous acoustic, guitar yeah. player and oh songwriter gosh, yeah. and I had some singer. great stories to tell too. Yeah. Mac McAnally said one time he said uh, he's so honest he was he was grew up as such an honest guy that um, his grandfather would sit there and tell him um, I want to see if you can run around the house he's like sitting on the front porch I want you to run around the house one time without thinking about possums and he would run around the house and come back and he'd go oh I'm sorry I thought about possums. <laughs> That's how honest he was. Most people would have just said, uh, nope, didn't think about possums one time. Give me a dollar, you know. And so he says, I'll give you a dollar if you can go around the house without thinking about possums. And, he, you know, and that was yeah. one of his funny stories. Yeah, that's neat. That's neat. But, uh, well, anyway, it was great talking to you. Yeah, thanks. Chris Hugan. No problem. Attorney at law, music attorney and musician and um, overall intelligent guy having to know everything with the, about the music business. There is to know. <laughs> well, and, I don't know uh, if that's It's great true, to know you, you and people like you that uh, keep us from losing everything that we have, losing our shirt in the music business. And uh, Well, hopefully I can help. Yes. And, uh, well, this has been Designated Drummer. I'm Keith Rainwater talking to Chris Hugan and had a really great time, learned a lot. And uh, hopefully if you take anything away from this, you'll take that um, – You'll take away the fact that you really need to have somebody, a legal person, look over any contract that you may sign. Don't sign anything without without having somebody that knows what they're reading look it over and uh, advise you. So I know that when we did our recording contract with Lone Star, it went back and forth between RCA and us probably 10 times sure. you know, with different wording and, oh, sure. no, that's not worded right. And you know our lawyer at the time kept sending it back. And in fact, we started making our album. We hadn't even officially signed the recording contract for six months, I think, or something mm-hmm. like that. It took forever. Mm-hmm. They even did a fake signing. They did like the video cameras and the whole thing. You know, Lone Star, or, you know, Lone Star signs the deal mm-hmm. with RCA and we're signing nothing, basically, because yeah. it was still being going back and forth between New York and, and Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm uh, I'm curious. Did you have sometimes you have long form recording contracts because they can be quite long once you get on a major label right. level. They can be twenty five, thirty, forty pages. But sometimes if they want to get the band or the artist in the studio, they'll sign what's called a letter of intent. Um, that and, may be what we signed when we did for the cameras or whatever. You know, when we first signed the thing. Right, and it just sort of is a skeleton. Yeah. Agreement that says, "Hey, this is the core terms that we've agreed to." You'll see that a lot of times with athletic coaches too, when there becomes a vacancy at a very high-powered program, and sometimes they have a very short window or a very short time yeah. to hire a new coach, and they don't have the time to draft the long-form contract because it does have to go back and forth. Yeah. So they'll sign them to a letter of intent that says. These are our basic terms. Do, do you recall ever signing anything like that? I think so, yeah. yeah. And I think that's mm-hmm. the one we did when we did it for the cameras, basically, where the cameras are saying, hey, we're going to get a shot of, of some video of you signing, signing, you know, for CMT or whatever, right. to, of signing the contract and mm-hmm. just getting that on camera kind of thing, you know. And it was right. like in the very beginning when we first started working on the album. and uh, But I don't remember actually signing the actual full contract, the legitimate one, until like six Sometimes. months later yeah. when the album mm-hmm. was 
you know, almost done, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. But it kept going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with this word and that word's not right. He would cross, he would take a, a red pen and just cross through stuff yeah. all the time. Well, I, you know, recording contracts were different because you were dealing with major labels um, and they obviously they have to have paper. But I will tell you that I was stunned when I first started practicing law. No, it was when I was in law school, I was, I was working for uh, clerking for a, a music row law firm that uh, had some, some big clients. I can't really say who they are, but um, one, of the, one of the clients was a major music manager, personal manager, who at the time he had, I remember looking at, at Billboard's Top 40 in Country, and he managed, I think, six or seven acts that were in the top 40. And I think four or five of them were in the top 20. They had top 20s. So he was a big manager. And I, your listeners, you may know that personal managers oftentimes takes 15% of whatever the act earns. Yeah, like publishing gigs, live everything. gigs, merch, everything. Yeah, yeah that's, it's a very mm-hmm. lucrative job to have. Um, but it's also very tough. It's a personal, you're, you're almost a babysitter really right, to yeah. your acts. And, uh, but he had a lot of them in there. He didn't have a written contract with one of them, not you're one kidding of them. Me. Wow. And, and I remember speaking with th- this manager and, and I said, why don't, you know, I, I'm just curious. And he said, well, if, if our relationship deteriorates and uh, you know, this is such a trust business, a personal management yeah. that we just agree. And if one of us has a problem with the way the business is going, we work it out because, yeah. and I thought, well, my goodness, that's, that's a dying trend yeah. because right. I wouldn't know a single personal manager in today's world that would ever operate without a written contract. Yeah. So wow. that's incredible. Yeah. Well, it was great talking to yep. you and we've learned a lot and um, we will definitely see you next time on Designated Drummer. See you.